0: You know, it's interesting, um, in both the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament, both of those two languages have one word uh, that means both uh, spirit, wind, and breath. Uh, ruach in Hebrew, pneuma in Greek. And Jesus, in this conversation with Nicodemus, is touching on and playing with that, uh, that overlap in meaning. That exists in both of those languages. That tradition of likening the Spirit of God, the life giving Spirit of God, to the wind that's powerful and mysterious. We don't know when it comes or why it comes, but when it comes, it moves everything. And to the breath, that invisible in and out flow of life that comes in and out of our lungs, the spirit, the breath, the wind. It's, uh, it comes up in Genesis uh, 1 when God breathes his spirit, his breath into Adam and gives him life. We see it maybe, uh, in one of, maybe most vividly in all of the Israelite scriptures in that uh, beautiful passage in Ezekiel 37. It's a strange story. But God takes a prophet, a preacher, a man named Ezekiel. Uh, he takes him out into a valley it's called a valley of dry bones. Uh, he basically, come, God takes him on this scenic tour of a mass grave and he gets there and it's, it's this valley that's full of bones, not just dead bodies, uh, but long since dead bones, scattered bones, lifeless bones, sun bleached and dry, dusty. And God asks Ezekiel, he says, can these bones live? Can what's dead come alive again? And Ezekiel says, or a smart answer, he says, God, only you know. God, you know. And then God says to Ezekiel, he says, prophesy, preach to the bones. Now that must have been an awkward sermon uh, to begin to give. I remember uh, immediately after seminary, uh, I had a professor who gave me the advice, hey, before you preach, practice in front of a mirror. And I, I, I tried it exactly once. It was far too awkward uh, to preach in a bathroom with no one listening. And so imagine just standing up in an empty valley, nobody that can listen to you. Maybe somebody passes by and thinks you've lost a screw, right? And here you are preaching to this horrific scene of lifeless bones. But as he preaches, as he begins to say what the Lord gives him to say, the text says that there began to be a rattling is the bones started to come together. Imagine that scene, bones flying around, coming back together. The bodies start to reconstitute themselves. It says that muscles and sinews and tendons started to come together around the bodies, but they were still not quite alive. They were still just come together, but not alive. And God said, preach to the breath, preach to the wind, and the wind will blow, and then the life will come back to them. And this valley of dry, dead bones came alive again. It's, it's not only a, a vivid and kind of visceral story, it's also a promise from God to his people saying that though you are dead, though that your sin has made you dead and lifeless and dry, I will bring new life. I will cause my spirit to blow in you again and to blow on you. I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will make you alive again. says, so I'm gonna totally change the way that you and I relate, the economy of our relationship. Right, I'm gonna breathe new grace and new life into you. Though you've, every time, every command I've given you, you found a way to break. Right, I gave you one command in the garden and you broke it. I gave you 10 commandments on Mount Sinai, you broke them. I gave you dozens of commands to keep your worship pure and holy. And you broke all of them. In my grace, I'm gonna give you new life and I'm gonna give you a new heart so that you can obey, so that you can live a life with me, with my breath, my spirit, That's what's going on when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, breathes the Spirit at the end of John 21 onto his disciples. And it's what's going on here in his conversation uh, with the rabbi Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus uh, under the cover of night. And we're told that Nicodemus was a rabbi, he was a teacher. Nicodemus was a leader in ancient Israel, or in contemporary Israel of Jesus' day. We're told he was a Pharisee, which means that he was a religious a zealot. He was uh, holy and righteous. He was a member of Israel's ruling council. He sat on the Jerusalem council. So this was a man of power and influence. Jesus calls him. He says, you are the teacher of Israel. So he must have been one of the most prominent, most educated, wisest teachers in all of Israel. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. and In his first address to him, he calls him rabbi. So here's what's Nicodemus doing. He's coming as a representative of the religious teachers and elite of Israel. He comes himself a rabbi and comes to Jesus to examine him and, I think, to validate his teaching. He comes to honor Jesus in some way when he calls him rabbi. Rabbi wasn't a title that was just thrown around. And here's one distinguished rabbi saying to someone who is really a backwoods itinerant preacher, he, said, he calls him rabbi. He says, I consider you like one of us. I see your wisdom. I see that nobody could be doing what you're doing unless God was with him. So this is a a dignifying thing that he gives. I think think Nicodemus believes that he's come to Jesus to do Jesus a favor, to give him his stamp of approval that he's considered and to be listened to as a teacher. And this is a a seal that would have meant something. Nicodemus, as we've said, was a man with a resume a mile long, this is somebody, you know, if, if you were to go up to one of Nicodemus's contemporaries, who was who a known man, if you were to go up to somebody in Israel and say, hey, you know Nicodemus? Is Nicodemus going to heaven? Somebody would have said to you, you know, I sure hope so. Because if Nicodemus isn't, uh, then none of us are. He's been the best of us. He's the smartest, he's the wisest, he's the most righteous. And so you can imagine the shock that it must have been to Nicodemus when Jesus said, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. He goes on to say, you must be born again if you're to enter the kingdom of God. You, Nicodemus, even you, even the best, even the brightest, even the most righteous and the the most morally pure, even you, Nicodemus, have to be born again. Even the best of living life the old way isn't enough to get into the new age, the new world of the kingdom of God. To enter into that kingdom requires the breath, the wind, the power of the spirit to blow and to make you new. Jesus is offering something entirely new. So we can understand why Nicodemus might be confused. Uh, The last words that we hear from him are words of confusion. He says, how can this be? How can this happen? What are you talking about, Jesus? Because you know, it's always uh, the best, it's always those who are most successful, that have the most to lose. When Jesus says, you have to be born again, everything's different now. You know, we have, my family likes to play board games. Uh, It can be a frustrating experience at times. Uh, My wife's a great sport, but my seven-year-old and four-year-old, you know, it can be touch and go. And it's not an uncommon thing in our house. It's getting less and less, but it's not uncommon. We're sitting around playing an emotionally stimulating game like chutes and ladders or uh, one of those. And we're playing the game in heart, my four-year-old, whether through just pure exuberance and unintentional or through somewhat intentional rage, uh, will turn over the whole game board. He'll get mad and he'll wipe the pieces off. or He'll just get excited and he'll start dancing and he'll knock everything off the board. And if you're losing, Right, if you're down, if you're if you're down at the bottom of the shoots and ladders, and he does that, you really don't care that much. You're like, all right, I guess we'll start over. You know, I get to get to start again. But you're, if you're at the top of the ladder, it's it's infuriating. It's a little bit maddening, and I admit I might take board games too seriously. Um, it's a little bit infuriating when your four-year-old takes all of your your hard-won lead and just turns the board over. And that must have been something like what Nicodemus was feeling here when he goes, I'm at the top of the ladder. You can't turn the ladder over after I've climbed this far, after I've built this resume, after I've gotten here. You can't tell me, surely this counts for something, right? Surely my resume matters a little bit. Surely I can carry some of it with me into the kingdom. And yet Jesus says, no, no. Even you have to be born again. You have to receive this new life. He says in verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven. No one has ascended to heaven, not even Nicodemus, could climb the ladder and get to the top and get the life that he's longing for. You know, there's, there's something that John does that he recognizes throughout the gospel uh, that I think we all know intuitively is true. is that There's two types of life in this world. One word that he uses uh, is bios. It's just biological life. It's the life that you live by getting up in the morning, brushing your teeth, going about your business. Everyday biological life. And then there's zoe, what he calls later on in this this place, eternal life. Deep and lasting, everlasting life. Life so deep and joyful and charged with meaning that it continues on now and into eternity. In most of our human intuition that there is more to life, that there is more to our life than just our daily existence. Most of our best answers at getting to that other life, that transcendent life, most of our best answers have to do with climbing a ladder of some sort. We might believe that if we climb the ladder of educational attainment and we get the right degrees and we get smart enough that we'll be wise enough and then we'll have real life. Or we might believe that spiritually, right, if we attain some kind of spiritual enlightenment, learn to pray the right kind of prayers, do the right kind of thing, that we can climb some kind of spiritual ladder and ascend to heaven. Or maybe it's moral. We believe that if we try hard enough and get good enough and fight sin hard enough, that we will climb the ladder and be rewarded with God. Or maybe some of us are so sick we can turn our families into a ladder to be climbed. Right, that if we believe that if our kids turn out just the right way, if they're well behaved enough and they do well enough in school and they love us old enough, love us well enough when they get older, then we will have we will have made that life that's worth living. But Jesus says no one has ascended into heaven. All of us have repeated the error of Babel. Remember when they tried to build a tower tall enough that they could reach to heaven and meet God. That we've all done that again and again, and that the problem with ladders. The problem with ladder climbing is that they they don't work, right? You can't reach heaven. The ladders that we climb, there's a few people at the top of them that are usually disillusioned when they get there, right? These are the, the, the people who reach the pinnacle of success. They get the job, they get the degrees, they get the family, they get there and they look at it and they go, I'm still empty. There's people who are wearing themselves out and clawing each other on their way up the ladder, kicking at each other on the way, they're getting tired. And then at the bottom of the ladder, there's a pile of bodies. Those of us like you and me have tried maybe uh, to climb the ladder, tried to live the life we thought we had to live, tried to do better, tried to be more. And we're burnt out and we're exhausted and we've realized that no one can ascend to heaven. No one can ascend to that kind of life that we are made to live, that kind of deep and lasting and abundant life. So what is it? Is it, is it a cruel joke? Right, That we're made for this kind of eternal, deep, and lasting life, and yet we can't get to it. And yet it always eludes us. It's always pa- past us. The poet M.S. Merwin uh, has a line in one of his poems. His poem's called River of Bees. I don't know what that means. Um, but his, the line is this, and it stuck me immediately. I've never forgotten it. He says, on the door it says what to do to survive. But we were not born to survive, only to live. Right? You weren't made to nearly, merely get by. You weren't made to just do life. You were made to live, to really, really live. And so if we can't get it under our own power, how do we get it? How do we come to it? Well, the rest of verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Right? No one can work our way up the ladder, but there is one who came down the ladder. Right, Jesus, uh, remember the beginning of John in his prologue, he says, in him was life and that life was the light of men. That life itself, life himself came down to us when we could never climb our way, earn our way, work our way to him. He came, he descended to us so that we could have life, so that we could have zoe, deep and abiding life. That's grace. Grace. Right? Grace is that when, when we were powerless to work our way to God, He came at immense cost to himself, to us. You know, this passage, this chapter, is just shot through with God's grace. It's full of the story of God's grace. John 3:16 and 17 are the two verses, maybe in the Bible, uh, certainly in maybe the Gospel of John where God's grace is is most clearly seen, I would imagine that more people have heard the words of John 3.16 and believed than maybe any other passage in scripture, right? It is a passage that is full of God's grace, his unearned, unmerited, overflowing love for sinners. You know, I love about this chapter, about this section, that God's grace is shown to be this overflowing work, it's not our work, it's the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, giving their life to us. Right? Each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is involved in showing out and giving up this incredible love to us. Right? you know John is very concerned with the Trinity. He goes back all the way in the, in, in the prologue. He tells us that Jesus was preexistent with God. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Right now, the gospel, this, this incredible free offer of grace, is what's always been shared between the Father, Son, and Spirit. This kind of overwhelming love and honor and acceptance. This, this bubbling over love that in the gospel comes out and overflows onto humanity. What they've always enjoyed together. It's like you took a bottle of champagne, right? Just already bubbling and full of life and you shook it up and you pop the top and the water just or the champagne just sprayed everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That that's some of what's happening and what John shows us here in John 3 is that this love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit comes out of the bottle. It can't be contained in eternity any longer. It comes out onto the earth. onto each of us. He shows us a Father that loves the world so much that he gave his only son right, John three sixteen. what it shows us about the Father is that the Father loves us to the utmost, right? It's easy, some, sometimes we read uh, the New Testament, it can become easy to believe, we know that Jesus loves us, right? Jesus is so full of grace and love and compassion for the downcast and the outcast, but behind him, we fear that there's this God that really just wants to judge us, right? Some have even had the idea that, that Jesus comes right, to save us from the God of the Old Testament, right, that he just really wants to smite everybody. But then Jesus somehow kind of comes in between us just at the last minute, and he can't punish us. But here John shows us, no, the Father, the Father that Jesus reveals loves us. And his motive for not only creating us and sustaining us and giving us life, but now in sending his own son for us is so that we, sinners, rebels, could become his sons and daughters so that we could become his children, no longer his enemies, but his children. That the father so loved the world. You know, one of, the, one of the main things Jesus reveals to us as a teacher about what God is like is that he teaches us to call his father, our father. That the God of the universe, the God that made everything, isn't some distant deity that just leaves us here to ourselves or who just waits to get even with us, but he's a loving father who longs to embrace us. When we sin against him, yes, he's just, but he mourns and he weeps over the sin that separates us from him. And he so wants to bridge over and bring us back to himself that he sends his only begotten son. So here we meet a father who loves the most, in a way that's just unbelievable. Here we meet a son who's given, a son who's sent, a son who's lifted up as the savior that we most need, the savior of sinners. I love this image. You know, I love that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He's talking to a teacher of Israel, a man who knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And he uses these two Old Testament stories to explain it to him, right? He he alludes to, to Ezekiel and his vision, the spirit blowing and bringing new birth, new life. And then he alludes to this story, this kind of obscure story from Numbers 21. It's a story about when God's people uh, in the wilderness in judgment for their sin got attacked by what uh, the author of Numbers calls fiery serpents. I've never met a fiery serpent. I don't care to meet a fiery serpent, Um, but they're being attacked by fiery serpents. And when they're bit, they die and they repent. Moses intercedes for them. And God says, take, make a a snake, make an image of a fiery serpent out of bronze, put it on a stick hold it up in the middle of the people, and when they look at the snake, instead of dying, they'll live. Right, it's another Old Testament picture of going from death to life. And Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake, as he lifted up the sign of death itself in the wilderness, so that when they looked on the sign of death, they didn't die but had life, so will people, when they look at the Son of Man lifted up, not die but have eternal life. When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, when he's lifted up on what itself is a symbol of death, the cross, a symbol of sin and death and darkness, becomes for us a sign of life. Just as as the Israelites, when when they were dying and they could look, all they had to do was look in faith at the serpent. And God miraculously brought them, spared their lives and gave them life. Jesus is saying, so will you sinners when you look to me When you look up out of your own sin, out of your own effort, out of your own attempts to to ascend your way to God, when you just look look at Jesus, look at him lifted up and dying there for you, you too will go from death to life. You too will find real life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son That whoever believes in him should not perish, should not be destroyed, but have eternal life, deep, lasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Then this strange one, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. What does that mean? Whoever believes in him, whoever looks to Jesus is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You know, the uh, English New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce uh, puts a, a great description and great explanation on this. He says, when we visit, imagine yourself, he said, when we visit a museum full of masterpieces, full of the great works of Western art, it's not the work itself that's on trial, it's the viewer. Right, so uh, he he tells a story about an English pop star who went to the Louvre in Paris and saw the Mona Lisa. And when asked about it, said that the Mona Lisa is a load of rubbish. And Bruce, in a kind of dry English wit, says this this star told us nothing new about the Mona Lisa, but told us everything we need to know about himself. (laughs) Right, that if you look at a masterpiece and you judge it and say, ah, load of rubbish, it doesn't in any way detract from the beauty or the grandeur of the art. All it does is talk about your taste, right? It reveals yourself as someone who doesn't have taste. And what Bruce says brilliantly is that what's true in the aesthetic realm is also true in the spiritual realm. That when we look at Jesus full of grace and goodness and beauty, when we look at him lifted up on the cross in self-giving love, his body broken, his blood shed, his life given over, when we look at that, and go, eh, no thanks. We judge ourselves. It, says, it does nothing to detract from Jesus. It does nothing to detract from his beauty, his worth, his goodness, or his grace. But it does shut us off from his grace. It judges us from our judgment of him. Look to Jesus and live. Uh, that's what's on offer when we look at, the, at Jesus on the cross. And so finally, it shows us a giving father, it shows us the son, our savior, and then then it shows us the power of this life-giving spirit and this Trinitarian grace, the life-giving spirit that blows where it wants, that brings new life, that has to come onto Nicodemus so that he could be born again into new life. You know, it's a strange, born again is an adjective for Christian. Uh, has become kind of commonplace, right? It's even used sometime to differentiate. Uh, you'll hear people on the news talk about it as a way to differentiate some Christians from other Christians. Oh, you're a, you're a born-again Christian, usually meaning they kind of think you're crazy. Um, but you'll, you'll hear people talk about born-again as a modifier for Christian. But imagine how strange it must have sounded on Nicodemus's ears the first time that this phrase had been uttered. Right? Born-again, born-again, that's a strange phrase. Word, But of course, for Jesus, what he's saying is it's not a qualifier for a type of Christian, born-again Christian versus non-born-again Christian. No, to be a Christian is to be born again. It's to experience this new life, this rebirth, that, that going from death to life, being born again is a part of what we get in Christ. It's a part of what it means to believe, is to be born again, is to go from death to life. In fact, Jesus tells us none of us can None of us can believe. None of us can have faith apart from the Spirit's renewing work, apart from the Spirit coming and giving us new life. That that's what the gospel is. The gospel isn't people in trouble getting a lifeboat. And 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 it's certainly not people who are already pretty good getting some teaching on how to get a little bit better. It's not sinners who realize all of a sudden the error of their ways and turn away and set their own will to following Jesus. Right, that's not the good news. The good news is that God makes dead people live again. Right, that just, just like in that, that valley of dry bones came to new life, the spirit blows and dead things come alive again. Right, we like to give ourselves more credit than that usually, right? We like to think that through some, uh, you know, enlightenment we came to see and we got we got right inside or maybe in our desperation we courageously saved ourselves or at least at least we had the you know we, we should get credit at least for believing but no the gospel is that even when you were running away from God and dead in your sins Christ died for you right it's not that you were here, here's one one analogy that I've heard right it, it's not that you were drowning at sea And Jesus came and threw you a life ring, and then you reached out with your strong arm and grabbed it. No. It's not that you were drowning. You had already drowned. You were dead and lifeless at the bottom of the ocean. Crabs were getting at you. God came down, breathed new life into you, took your arm, put it in the life ring, pulled you up, and brought your lifeless body back to life. That's what the gospel is. And in the midst of it, you can't see it that way, usually. It's something that when we look back on our lives, I can absolutely look back on my life and see that when I was running away from God, God was running after me. That before I thought it would be a good idea to pick up my Bible and start reading it, or before I decided it'd be a good idea to to go on the the weekend camp where I ultimately was uh, converted, right, before any of that happened, God was after me. He had stirred up in my own heart a disrest and a discomfort with my life. Things that used to satisfy didn't satisfy anymore. Questions that I used to be able to just kind of put to the back of my mind I couldn't keep in the back of my mind anymore. And so you look back and you realize, oh, the Spirit was working. He was breathing new life into me when I was dead in my sin. Thomas Aquinas, uh, the great medieval theologian, put it this way. The recreation of a single human heart is a greater miracle than the original creation of the entire universe. Right? The recreation of a single life, a heart going from dead to alive again, resurrection, if you think about it, is a more profound miracle than the original creation of the entire universe. Because it takes something that not only was lifeless, but that was actually actively working against life, was actively in rebellion against God. And so friends, if you've looked to Jesus, if you've found life in Jesus, you have been a recipient of the greatest miracle known to man. You have been a recipient of an absolute, irrefutable miracle. And all it takes uh, to be in on that is to look to Jesus to look to him by faith. If you're feeling stirred and dissatisfied with your, with your life, with your sin, with your questions, you can't put them away anymore. Jesus says, all you have to do is look to Jesus, look and believe, and you'll have life. What should a people be like who really believes about themselves that I rebelled against God, I was dead in my sin, and then all of a sudden a wind blew the Spirit came into my life. I went from death to life, resurrected. I have this new life with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. A people who really believes that about themselves, a church that really believes about that, that about themselves, should be the most humble. Right? Where is there room for arrogance? If you believe you are such a mess that Jesus had to bring you from death to life, should be, there shouldn't be a shred of arrogance in us. We should be the most in awe and grateful people in the universe. We should be a people who receive everything we get as a gift, who live to to join with Jesus in proclaiming this message in word and deed everywhere we can. First of all, uh, to our own hearts. And so let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you we admit, Lord, that oftentimes we've placed our hope in our own abilities to ascend the ladder. We've placed our hope in our own abilities uh, to overcome our worst habits and addictions, our own abilities to advance ourselves, our own abilities at work and at home. Lord Jesus, we've come to the end of ourselves. We admit that no one, certainly not us, can ascend our way to heaven And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you descended to us, that you came to give the life that you've always shared with your Father to us, that you came to be lifted up on the cross so that we might look to you and live. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have blown new life into the dead bodies that we live in, that you've made us alive together with Christ, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would fill our hearts uh, with gratitude, with awe, with worship, with humility, that we would never lose sight of the wonder, of the miracle uh, that is you and your life poured out for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.